The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by a guest speaker. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. That's online, wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. 8474. As some of you may know, uh, during the spring semester, the faculty invites several selected graduating seniors uh, to bring devotions uh, during chapel. And so it's my privilege to introduce our first uh, speaker, graduating senior Jason Vartanian, who will be bringing morning devotions. So come, Jason. Let me pray real fast, and then we'll, we'll get going. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your son. We are so thankful that we stand here today justified because of what he has done for us. We ask, Lord, this morning uh, that you would work through your word, Holy Spirit, for the glory and majesty of you, Heavenly Father, to be exalted because of your grand design and great plan in goodness and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Why is it that things in this life, great things, things like a juicy, wonderfully cooked, medium-rare ribeye leave us disappointed? Or a wonderful piece of music that really grips us at the core of our being? Wonderful intimacy with our spouse, a great night's sleep, a captivating movie, every single one of those good things that we experience in this life still leaves us somewhat, in some way, disappointed. It's never quite enough. I had an experience when I was 16 and I was doing something that I was told over and over again by many people that this is one of the greatest things that the human mind could ever experience. And after it happened, I thought to myself, is this really all I've been waiting for? Is this really the pinnacle and the climax that I was expecting? Because to be honest, that was really not that much, and I'm expecting a lot more. So why is it that we're always still somewhat disappointed with these good things in this world? The German romantics chose to use a word to summarize the reason with the term Zenzucht. It's a a term that C.S. Lewis often clung to to describe this yearning, this longing, this just unquenchable desire for something bigger, deeper, grander, and greater than anything that this world can give us. We all long for things. We long for a better family. We long for a better education. We wish we had better parents. We wish we had more happiness, more opportunity. Uh, But in the end, the true longing and yearning isn't these kinds of this-worldly things. We long for our true home. We long for the world to come. We long for the new creation. That is why this world is always still, to some degree, not enough and disappointing. But as Christians, we don't only long for this new creation, we don't only long for that world to come, but we have a hope anchored and rooted in that world to come. And so that's the text Uh, That's what we're discussing this morning in our text in Revelation 22, 
1 through 5. You're one of the few groups of people where I don't need to explain where books of the Bible are. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night, and they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for... The Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Those seven churches were struggling. Those seven churches had conflict. Those seven churches were suffering. Those seven churches in the book of Revelation were tempted with complacency, assimilation, and they needed a vision of what was coming. They needed to see and imagine and know the reality of the new creation that was ahead, that had already been begun and inaugurated in Christ's very own resurrection and exaltation. And that's what Revelation does. It gives us this wonderful window into the war of the ages as we look at the triumph of the Lamb. It gives us this perspective of the reality behind the veil of this world. And so in the book of Revelation, right before this text, we have the destruction of the great whore Babylon. We have the final defeat of Satan. We have the final judgment of all men. And right into Revelation 21, we get to the introduction of that new creation. This city, the beautiful bride adorned for her husband coming down from heaven and heaven meets earth and The book of Revelation has been called the climax of prophecy. It's the final end of all things the scriptures have ever pointed to. In Revelation 22, 1 through 5, it's the climax of the climax. It's the pinnacle of the whole thing. It's the very, very end that we get a picture of. And so what John is doing with this text is he is showing us that the reality of the world to come offers an indestructible hope. He shows that the reality of the world to come offers an indestructible hope. And there's two things that we hope in. And what we get and who we're with. What do we get? We see there's the banishment of Eden's curse and the reward of Eden's tree. The verses say, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and no longer will there be anything accursed. Total and utter security. The curse of Eden is gone. Death Oil, pain, struggle, tears. It is vanquished. And we even see this in 21.4. He says, God, uh, excuse me, 
John says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and they will be, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And then the question comes, why is that curse of Eden vanquished? Why is it gone? And we know. It's because the flaming sword of Eden that barred Adam and Eve from the tree of life has been taken by Christ. Jesus bore the wrath of that flaming sword. Jesus was himself exiled. Jesus was cut off from the land of the living so that we would not have to one day suffer the curse. And can you imagine what that world will be like? Can you imagine what it's going to be like walking near the river of the waters of life with the tree of life? Not just one tree, but an orchard. John uses orchard. I mean, trees all over. It is so much greater, so much better, so much more expanded, escalated, and exalted from Eden. And we will be there. And we will eat from that fruit. It's hard to imagine, though. It's hard for us to to think about a world without sin, without the curse, because we've become so callous and so used to this world. Caitlin and my wife and I, we have a friend. uh, They adopted somebody from Russia. They adopted him at a young age, but his name is Alexander. And what was really hard for them to comprehend was Alexander was so hurt for the first several years of life that uh, he just really could not comprehend how he had wonderful parents that loved him. He just could not actually believe the fact that these people really cared for him. And at meals, he would take his food and stuff it in his mouth and keep it all in the back of his mouth because he's so used to doing that. And he would do things called, they call it blowing up the bridge, where he would test their love by doing things that were mean and really hurt them because he didn't quite believe that things were as good as they seemed to be. And it seems like for us today, as we think about this world to come, as we ponder the new creation, sometimes we're so used to this world full of the curse and full of sin and harm that we almost don't believe it's true. It's almost, it's almost too good for us to really comprehend and believe. But brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, God's word says it. It is coming. So the banishment is gone. And number two, we do get that reward of Eden's tree, as I've already talked about. That orchard of the tree of life. But why do we get this tree of life? What is the answer of Revelation? Revelation 22.14 gives us the reason. It says, Blessed are those who wash their robes with the result that they have the right of the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. And if you look at the motif of the robes and the washing in the book of Revelation, there's only one place where it gives the specific picture of what the robes are washed in. They are washed in, in 714, the very blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb is what they wash their robes in that makes them white so that they can enter the city and so that they can have authority over the tree of life. Authority. How is it that we have authority over the tree of life? It's because Christ himself obeyed that law. He fulfilled that covenant of works. He merited the ability to partake from the tree of life. 
and that is imputed to us in our trusting in Him and act of faith, and the robes are washed and we're given authority to partake from the tree as Christ has won that for us. And even though use of the verb apodidome in speaking of the 12 kinds of fruit that are bearing from the tree, uh, the semantic range, it, it, it can mean yielding fruit, and it often does in so many contexts. But there's a lot of words that John could have used. And what's interesting is apodidome also has a connotation of recompense and just equitous reward. It's very interesting. But again, brothers and sisters, Christ is the one who has won for us that ability to partake from the tree of life. How does this make you feel? What does this make you think about? How does this encourage you? How does this spur you on? What do you think it did for those churches? The whole book of Revelation is just moving us, pushing us through this present evil age of martyrdom, suffering, and persecution with eyes looking forward to that world to come. And brothers and sisters, please be encouraged by that. Uh, And one last question. As a student today, as a husband, a wife, father, a mother, what is it that you're maybe doing right now so that somehow you could partake of the tree of life yourself? What is it that you're maybe thinking about or doing that's your own self-justification? Because sometimes I even think about getting there on my own to some degree. Not in confession, but in function. We just do what we are prone to that. And the fact that we have to come to grips with over and over again is we'll never be good enough. We'll never be good enough pastors. We'll never be good enough shepherds. We'll never be smart enough. We'll never get good enough grades. We'll never be valuable enough or respected enough to get to that tree of life, to get to this new creation on our own. It is only through the blood of Christ and his work for us. So those are the things that we get. But who are we with? It says, The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and they will see his face, and there will be no more night, and they will not have need for the light of a lamp or the sun, because the Lord will shine upon them. Who are we with? We are with God and the Lamb. Revelation 21.3 reads, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his God. God himself will be with them and be their God. The presence of God isn't just one more prop. It's not just something like the river. It's not just something like the tree. It's not just something like the throne. Uh, The presence of God isn't just one more thing. It is the thing of the new creation. It is the fulfillment of the covenant. It is the fulfillment of the purpose and design for humanity. Uh, Reverend Keel and I were discussing a few weeks ago as he was finishing up the Ezekiel series uh, in his sermon series. The very end of Ezekiel says, as it's speaking about the temple city, it says, and it will be called that the Lord is there. That's kind of the, the pinnacle component of its name. And that's the whole points of the new Jerusalem. The Lord is there and he's not just there, but he's there with us. And we are beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ 
on the throne. And that is something that Eden never had. Eden never had the throne. Even Eden never had that revelation for beautiful, majestic angels worshiping in God's special presence. But now, because of Christ, God has brought that down to earth for us. This has always been the purpose of God and his design. I love this quote from Richard Bauckham. He says, The end of history is not just the last event of history, but it bears a unique relationship to the whole of history. It is the point at which all the truth of history comes to light. It is the divine judgment on the meaning and value of history. It reveals God's ultimate purpose. And that's what we see at the end of history. Us dwelling with God, beholding the beauty and majesty of His glory in perfect relationship and worship and ever-deepening, everlasting, ever-increasing satisfaction as that longing for our true home is finally fulfilled. And so, brothers and sisters, today, please be encouraged as we as we are just getting off to a new semester. Uh, let your eyes be on the prize that is truly held. Yes, look forward to the end of the semester and when finals are over. Yes, look forward to graduation. Yes, look forward to the day when you get that call or you become a professor or you take up that vocation. Yes, look forward to all those good things. But remember, your true home is yet to appear. Your true home is yet to come. The world that God designed for you. And so a few last exhortations of how this text personally hits me. I've noticed that I don't long for that world to come as much as I should because I am so distracted by this world. And as every good pilgrim should be marching on to his destination, sometimes I like to take a little gentle rest in the bed of grass on the way, and sometimes I, get a too, I just get too comfortable, and I take a nap, and it harms my journey. Be careful not to be too comfortable with the here and now. Be careful not to take too long of a rest in the things of this world. It also reminds me again and again, as Scripture does, that Christ alone accomplishes this for us. He merits the city, the tree, eternal life, fellowship, reconciliation, all of that for us. It is nothing that I've done. It's nothing I could have ever done. It is simply a gift of His goodness and His grace. And it levels my pride and it levels my despair. Because Christ has done it, I cannot do it. But because Christ has done it, He will work through me in the midst of my suffering by His Spirit to bring me home. And I have hope in that. And so pilgrims, May we not tarry in our journey to the celestial city. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that we have been given this precious gift. The depth, the grandeur of this reality is something that we cannot comprehend. That you, Lord, in your mind have designed something for all eternity for us to enjoy. 
is something that we really cannot grasp. But Lord, Holy Spirit, we ask this morning you would help us to believe your word, that you would help us to exalt, glorify, and worship your Son, and that we would trust in you as things are difficult, and that we would look forward to our home as we get distracted. In Jesus' name, amen. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.